the first question is, is it not best on the retreat to do all your movements slowly and to eat very uh, slowly? I'm trying to do that, but I'm aware that most people are moving quite rapidly. Uh, we don't do anything slow for doing it slow. If you want to be extremely mindful of physical movement, it will very often have the effect of slowing the movements down. But just going slow because of going slow, no. Snails do that quite well. We don't have to do that. But mindfulness, yes. The first foundation of mindfulness is attention to one's physical movements, voluntary and involuntary. And if we do that um, to the extent of being aware of them, rather than of the other foundations, I will talk about them in detail, then it very often slows the movements down. For that purpose, it will be good. What all the other people are doing, well, maybe they all live long and happily and all attain Nibbana. And that's all that is of any interest to us about anyone else. We do it for ourselves and then we pass it on to others. Is it helpful to meditate with a tanka? A tanka, for those of you who might not know what a tanka is, it's um, usually a religious painting. It can also be um, not a painting, but it can be um, stitches also, but usually it's a religious painting, which is used in the Tibetan tradition. And uh, it's for people who are very visual, if you have looked at the tanka and can then visualize that which is depicted on the tanka without looking at it, it can be extremely helpful for concentration. But to continue looking at a tanka, that usually does not have a very um, concentrated effect. It, it only has it if you can then use it as a visualization without having to look at it itself. Um, it's certainly not helpful at this particular moment since we haven't got one here. So it's m more helpful to do the uh, methods which we're doing here. A few years ago I read that within 20 or so years everyone would live 10 or 20 years longer and that no one under 50 years old could know how long they would live. Um, perhaps to between 120 and 150. It seems from a recent article in the London Times that scientists are now isolating the actual gene which causes aging and the gene which causes disease. The advance of science is accelerating and I wonder if we know what we're in for. They don't seem to be looking for a gene to kill off greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> yeah. 
but many religious tenets may become out of date. How should we approach the possibility that the Bible's three score years and ten, which is already out of date, or the Buddhist, I have not got beyond disease, are simply no longer valid? Well, uh, I don't think that they are no longer valid. As far as I know, there are more young people dying of AIDS than ever before. So I don't think they're no longer valid. I think one disease kills, they used to have diseases which we no longer have and that killed off whole villages and uh, townships and now we've got other diseases that kill off people. And that they're going to isolate the gene which causes disease, well, more power to them. Let's see what happens. At this point in time, it hasn't happened. People are getting sick all over. All you have to look at are the biggest buildings in any town. They are invariably the hospital, wherever you go. About the church bells. (laughs) Is it better to use them as a meditation object when they uh, ring a long time, which means to listen to them exactly and very aware, or is it better to try to be transparent for the sound, to have no resistance, and to try to stay on the breath? Well, neither. No resistance, yes, that's correct. To be transparent to the sound, yes, but not the breath. It is the transparency to the sound which becomes the meditation subject. To then try the breath is very uh, cumbersome. It's it's not worth it. But at that time, it's only five minutes at the very most. I've timed it. And uh, so... If you're really keen on staying with the breath, you've got five minutes left to do that. So, to have the sound go right through you and um, experience the transparency of the body, which can result in very, um, very pleasant uh, sensation and may even be strong enough so that after the sound is gone, one can continue on that. So that's the, the best way to deal with, with that uh, sound. Is there a difference between the quality of love towards the most lovable person, the most beloved person, and, for example, an animal or a rose? Uh, well, yes because we discriminate. We certainly have a difference, not just between the quality of love towards the most beloved person and the one that's sitting next to us. It's, uh, that's even far more um, noticeable than roses or animals. We discriminate, and that's why we have different feelings of love, different, uh, um, well, a different extension of the heart. If we learn to use the uh, heart for the purpose of loving, then 
ideally it's possible that the quality of love that comes out of the heart is never changed no matter what or whom we have in front of us so certainly there is a difference and uh, a difference also between the love we have for our most beloved person and the one that we feel angry at it's a great difference but we're trying to minimize that difference to make it smaller so that it comes together more if following the breath becomes flat and dull is it appropriate to use the imagination to create images or feelings that give more interest and pleasure to the attention or is this just the mind constructing a false reality well it's certainly the mind constructing because it's not the breath that's flat and dull it's the mind that gets flat and dull but it's perfectly appropriate to use something else if the mind becomes so disinterested that it won't stay on it that's what the mind does if it's totally disinterested it won't stay on the breath so loving kindness meditation instead maybe that might interest the mind more or contemplation if we are going to do more and others and other techniques if you've learned other methods already use one which interests the mind more certainly so it's always the mind flat and dull is the mind uh, pleasure is the mind whatever it is it's all mind so the mind needs to be interested if it's interested it will have a much easier time in staying on the meditation subject so yes change the meditation subject um i wouldn't advise at imaginary things but if there's something that the heart is very close to and where the heart can open up and if you can visualize it if you're visual and can visualize it it may be very helpful to use that so um, just imaginary uh, pictures or something like that is usually not very helpful in fact it's not helpful but something where the heart is very close to that can be very helpful if we acknowledge that other paths are seeking the same goal as the buddhist path although the techniques to attain it differ then in bowing to the sangha is it appropriate that we bow to all monks nuns and renunciates who have renounced worldly life for the sake of spiritual enfoldment whatever their tradition it's always all right to bow it's a measure and a manifestation of humility and humility is an essential quality on the spiritual path it's the opposite of spiritual materiality because humility means that we know there's something greater than we are personally in the buddhist tradition we bow to the sangha not to those who are monks and nuns and renunciates at all we bow to the enlightened sangha to those who have 
been able to propagate the teaching of the Buddha in such a way that it's available to us. So the enlightened Sangha can be anyone. It doesn't have to be actually a person that is ordained, nor does it have to be enunciate. So the tradition in bowing to Buddha Dhamma Sangha, in that case Sangha are those that are enlightened. However, if one knows other Sangha, which are, as mentioned here, monks, nuns, and renunciates, and one has respect and reverence for them, it's certainly all right to bow to them and think of them and uh, have them sort of in mind as something to emulate if one feels uh, attracted to that. Recognizing thoughts, naming, letting go, and substituting. With, with what? For instance, when driving a car or before falling asleep, I'm successful to recognize the thoughts, but I feel at the mercy of automatic thinking because I don't know what I should do instead, especially when driving a car before falling asleep, when riding in a train or waiting for something. Uh, automatic thinking in this t case would probably mean discursive thinking and um, just fantasies. And one of the best things to substitute that with would be loving kindness and compassion for oneself and those people that are near. And if there aren't any near, for those that one can think of. And then the mind is doing something productive and appropriate. And before falling asleep, it's one of the best things one can possibly do. Put the mind on unconditional, impersonal love and compassion for oneself and all beings or those that one uh, chooses to have it for at that time if all beings is too vague and not exact enough. Can you please explain the difference between spiritual joy and non-spiritual joy? How it feels, how it's brought about, its quality, etc. Non-spiritual joy comes through the senses. It smells good, it tastes good, it's nice to touch, it sounds good, and it looks good. That's worldly joy. And how that feels, everybody knows, I presume. I mean, we've all had it, no? It would be a sorry lot if we haven't had it. <laughs> and spiritual joy doesn't have outer conditions. It's a second meditative absorption. And we'll get to those in due course, in this course. <laughs> if whilst feeling unhappy about myself and my meditation, I try to help the situation by summoning loving-kindness towards myself. I often find that it's a sad person who's doing the loving or trying to, which is a bit dismal. How or where do we find the strong, warm, optimistic, loving self that can truly encourage us? This strange division of self baffles me. 
Where does our love come from? How can the confused, unhappy self locate it? Well, the first sentence is the clue to this um, misery. Um, if one is feeling unhappy about myself and my meditation, why feel unhappy about oneself and one's meditation? Wh what reason is there? Recognition, no blame, change. And at least recognition and no blame. Why be unhappy about one's meditation? Meditation is meditation. There's nothing to be unhappy about. If we can only possibly be unhappy about meditation, one's own, if we have expectations. I'm expecting to sit here in bliss. And I'm not getting any. This is terrible. Now I've come all this way and bliss hasn't come. And then, of course, it gets worse and worse because I'm unhappy about the meditation and I know I can't blame anybody else, so I have to blame myself. And uh, then we are in a sort of um, mind state which makes things much worse. Meditation is as it is, just as everything else is as, as it is. And we become extremely unhappy, and this is the cause of all dukkha, if we don't want it the way it is. We want it different. We are not pleased with the way it is. That we make effort is a totally different matter. Making effort is a quality of the mind. But being disgruntled about the state of affairs, whatever it is, whether it's food, weather, meditation, neighbors sitting, uh, standing, walking, it doesn't matter. Being disgruntled about any of it, that's dukkha. It's the first and second noble truth. The first noble truth, which are, as far as four noble truths are concerned, are the Buddha's enlightenment statement when he sat under the famous Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, or what is today Bodhgaya in India. The first noble truth says that there is dukkha, that all existence contains dukkha. Whichever name we like to give that dukkha, it doesn't really matter. It is not totally satisfactory. And the second noble truth says there's only one single cause for dukkha, and that's craving. Craving means wanting to have or wanting to get rid of. Now, we can easily check out the truth of those statements, particularly the second one, if we just for a moment <coughs> drop anything we have in mind that is causing anxiety, or as in this case, even unhappiness. Just drop it. Drop the wish that it should be different. And we're dropping the dukkha. Of course, we're totally free to pick it up in the next moment again, carry it around again and have just as much dukkha as we had before. But at least we have had an example of what the Buddha meant when he said, this is the cause for dukkha. 
things are the way they are. We're making effort, yes. But effort and being unhappy about something, that's totally different. Effort, if it is connected to result thinking, is wanting. It brings about a lot of dukkha. So, sitting and meditating and looking at it the way it is can never produce unhappiness. Only wanting it different, that produces unhappiness. Most people are clever enough not to have this kind of wish about things which they can't possibly change, like weather or something like that. But with meditation, when they do have this wish, it will stop all further progress because one can't become concentrated and be at the same time wanting something from the meditation. It's either or. It's either I'm going to concentrate, let myself fall into the meditation, or I want something from it. The mind cannot do two things at the same time, which is quite fortunate. It can change constantly, but it can only do one thing at a time. So dropping result thinking. And where does love come from? Well, I think when we have experienced love, even may it only be for a short time or at certain times, not always, we know where it comes from. It comes from our inner being and it is a warmth and embracing of others just as one can embrace oneself. Oh dear, another one. Today in meditation I felt strong anger and destructive thoughts and feelings towards myself and others. I tried acknowledging, labeling, compassion to myself, knowing the impermanence of feelings. Still, the anger felt explosive and dominated my mind. I then decided to try fully feeling the anger while doing deep breathing. After some time, the strength of anger reduced and I was able to connect it with feelings of fear I had earlier experienced. Could you please comment? Fear is a subdivision of anger. Fear can only be experienced towards that which we dislike. So it belongs in the category of ill will and or hate. We've got two main categories to deal with as human beings, and they are hate and greed. And I have expressed them as wanting to have and wanting to get rid of, which sounds a little more polite and expresses exactly the same thing. But if we use the categories that the Buddha expressed, they're called hate and greed, and fear belongs to hate. We can only fear what we hate. We don't fear what we love. So it's the same thing, fear and anger. We get angry about what we fear. In fact, we can get aggressive about what we fear because we feel threatened by what we fear. So the first thing to do is when the feelings of fear have been recognized, to inquire, what am I afraid of? And every answer we get 
is a new question until we feel that we have come to rock bottom and really seen the fear in all its aspects. I can tell you what the rock bottom answer is, and I will, but in essence, everybody has to come there by him or herself. It's fear of annihilation in all forms and in all ways that we can be annihilated. But it's useless to say, oh yes, I know I'm afraid of annihilation, and then get on with the anger and the fear. Question it, investigate it, look at it, find it yourself. And as you look at it and find it yourself, it will make a great difference. But even if you don't get down to that rock-bottom answer, any answer on the way is helpful. Investigate the fear. While there is explosive anger, it won't be possible to investigate the fear. At that time, the um, substitution with something else uh, is very difficult, as it was here in this question, and um, the person who wrote this did something else, which apparently um, was helpful. The intermediate step before we are able to substitute with the opposite, which I have mentioned, and I mention it again because it's uh, quite important, is to turn the mind totally away from that which is so disturbing and just use the mind for something entirely different. If one is visual, one can visualize a beautiful meadow with wildflowers or a small child playing in the sand or the ocean and the waves gently coming to the shore, whatever one likes. One can think of a very nice situation. It's an intermediate step to give the mind some breathing space. So eventually we can learn also to substitute right away. But in the beginning, that's very difficult. So we give the mind a breathing space, so to say, by going somewhere entirely different with it, and then investigate the fear. Could it be said that the four supreme emotions are like filters for our sense contacts, that is, compassion, colored glasses, I don't know, colored glasses. Colored glasses would mean more like a looking at something in a, not in the true way, does it? Maybe it doesn't mean that. That our development of the supreme emotions determines the feeling that arises, unpleasant, pleasant, and neutral, and hence our labeling and reaction. To develop these emotions, then, is it best to start with cultivating our reactions to think, speak, act with compassion so that gradually our perceptions and feelings are guided by the supreme emotions. Does this mean then that as one becomes more equanimous that the feelings that arise are more and more neutral? No, to the last one, it certainly doesn't. Equanimity does not mean neutrality. And if I have an, a chance, I might speak about equanimity. 
Equanimity is imbued with loving kindness and compassion. Equanimity is a rock-like quality within oneself where the outer conditions no longer rock the peace. But it's certainly not the same as neutrality. If it were, it wouldn't have a different name to it. Um, to develop the four supreme emotions, is it best to start with cultivating our reactions to think and speak and act with compassion so that gradually our perceptions and feelings are guided by the supreme emotions? Yes, certainly. The more the better. Is there a danger of being too analytical when contemplating? Yes, certainly. Most certainly. If one, does, if one is used to intellectualizing, it's, um, it's a danger which one then may, may result in the fact that because one can intellectualize and analyze that one thinks one has already done it. That also happens with reading books. People read a philosophical or a psychological book or something that is uh, very uh, uh, profound and uh, has a lot of uh, um, very good ideas in it. And they finish the book, put it in the bookshelf, and think they've done it. We've done nothing. What we know and what we can do is miles apart. So certainly there's a danger of being too analytical when one is contemplating. Contemplation, as we have done it so far, is strictly geared towards what do I feel? What do I feel within me? And also, why do I feel it? And is it that which is most helpful? It really doesn't um, demand an intellectual understanding. It doesn't demand an intellectual understanding to know whether I have enmity within me. And it doesn't demand that from any of the others. It's strictly geared towards our inner realization of how we feel and what is uppermost in our hearts. Could you please explain the meaning, symbolism, of the threefold bowing pupils do at the beginning or at the end of a meditation session. We bow to Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Buddha as the enlightenment principle, Dhamma as the great teaching which has been propagated and is available to us, and Sangha already explained, the enlightened ones who were able to uh, propagate the teaching for us. The bowing is a sign of humility, commitment and gratitude, reverence to that which is the highest ideal. The enlightenment principle, which the Buddha, Buddha means the enlightened one, is not a name, uh, personified and uh, which we all carry within us, which is available, and the Dhamma, the way to actualize it. Yes, Sangha, the enlightened ones. I meditate for two years regularly. I can observe positive effects in my everyday living, but I've never yet had um, a strong feeling of joy or physical reactions when meditating. Is this a question of patience? 
which I should be practicing anyway as a lifelong task. Uh, yes, patience. Patience and perseverance. Two years isn't enough for most people. Um, it can be, and it can particularly be enough if one takes in an intensive meditation course such as this and actually really uh, uses the time to the best advantage, then it can be enough. It very often isn't. It takes longer. It depends entirely what karmic resultants one brings to the meditation. Almost invariably, in retreats of short duration, only certain aspects of practice are discussed. I realize we all have different spiritual work to do. However, I feel it would be helpful if you could outline or essentialize for us how one might study and practice the Buddhist teaching in a balanced and complete way. We are, in this course, touching upon all of the Buddhist teaching. Naturally, not in every detail. But the Buddhist teaching consists of sila, samadhi, and panya, which means morality, concentration, and wisdom, insight. And we'll talk and practice all three. And this is a balanced and essential practice which in the Buddhist teaching is outlined in every discourse and particularly in the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. So as long as we know, and I did say that the very first evening, but it's difficult to remember all that, that meditation needs two legs to stand on. It can never stand by itself. It has to have the support system of the uh, virtues or the morality the uh, purification, which we have already talked about now for two days, purification of emotion. We'll talk about purification of mind also, which is of one leg, and the other leg is wisdom inside. And then connecting the two is the meditation, and that's the Buddha's teaching. The uh, practice of meditation lets me experience life in its boundaries ever more but my ego is um, resisting this insight with a very strong um, fear of death how can I um, react to these attacks without suppressing them. Um, I'll, I'll be talking about death and fear of death and uh, that when we do the five delivery collections, one of them being the recollection of one's own death. Um, just to say it uh, briefly here to this question would be that the meditation can only work and can only have any kind of peacefulness in it if the um, ego support is temporarily 
lessened or even abolished because the ego support is thinking. So we have to temporarily lessen it or abolish it. So then, of course, the ego says, this is dreadful, I don't want anything to do with it, and is afraid to be annihilated. I can assure you, it's not that easy to annihilate the ego. Go right ahead and don't think. It will be right back the minute you stop meditating in full force. There's no need to be afraid. It takes far more to annihilate the ego. But that's what it is. That's what the fear is all about. The fear is the fear of annihilation. Uh, here it's expressed as fear of death, and that's the same thing. People are afraid of death because they're afraid of annihilation. So you can be quite sure it takes far more than a few meditation sessions to get rid of the ego. But it's a lovely experience to be rid of it for a few minutes. It's very much to be recommended. I don't understand how beings can be free from dukkha. Well, it is hard to understand because only arahants can do it. Is it that we notice unpleasant sense contact and simply choose not to react mentally to it? If this is so, are we training ourselves to fully notice when and how we mentally react and learning to let go of the reaction, no matter what that reaction is, positive or negative? Is this what you mean when you say each experience of dukkha is a learning experience? No, not at all. Free from dukkha is a person that is free from self. Because if there's nobody there, there's nobody possible to have dukkha. And that means enlightenment, nibbana, total freedom. Usually doesn't happen in an eight-day or nine-day meditation course. <laughs> now, the next thing. We train ourselves to fully notice when and how we mentally react. Yes, that is a very good thing to do to become aware of our reactions. To learn to let go of the reaction, yes, it's a possibility. No matter what that reaction is, positive or negative, no, that's not so. Our negative reactions are both hate and greed. Hate is easier to understand that it's negative because it feels terrible. And greed is very difficult to understand that it's negative because it promises fulfillment. And that's why I explained already, and I'll say it again, that the hate people are much more difficult to live with, but they're practice. And the greed people are much easier to live with, but for them it's very difficult to practice because they're always full of hope. The next thing that they want, that's going to do it. That it won't do it doesn't matter because they can think of a new one. So, no, we're not learning to not react whether it's positive or negative. If we are reacting with love and compassion, certainly that's what we want to do. If we react with uh, uh, helpfulness, yes, we certainly want to do. Each experience of dukkha is a learning experience. It doesn't mean that we don't react. 
If we have got to that stage that we don't react, we don't have to learn it anymore. The learning experience comes from the fact that we realize that we're having dukkha because we're wanting something. And maybe we can look at what we want and stop justifying those wants and drop the wanting. And when we drop the wanting, we're dropping the dukkha. Obviously, everybody will pick it up again, but never mind. At least we've dropped it for a moment. It's a very pleasant experience to drop dukkha for a moment. I usually recommend to try it. Try dropping it. And we can only drop dukkha when we drop whatever it is we want, however justified it seems. Whether we want a good meditation or something to eat, or a more comfortable sitting position, or somebody to say something entirely different from what's being said. Whatever it is we want, drop it, and there's no dukkha. Or the person that we've uh, been with uh, to uh, be there or to be go away, just drop it. And the whole thing becomes easy and pleasant. A part of my mind is not very respectful towards my insights. That's unfortunate, isn't it? (laughs) He forgets, he doubts, he makes fun of what to do. Well, doubt is our fifth hindrance, called skeptical doubt, doubtfulness. And it is a feature of the mind, which is uh, everybody's heritage, And it has, it will only um, diminish when the meditation comes together. Then it starts diminishing. It only disappears at the first path moment when we experience for the first time that there really isn't a self, that we've been living in illusion. When we experience that for a single instance, then doubt skeptical doubt disappears. So at this point in time, doubt is a natural part of the mind, and as long as it doesn't deteriorate into doubting everything, particularly one's own ability. The Buddha said that one of the very important qualities we need for meditation is to have a certain self-confidence. That doesn't mean that we feel superior, but it means we have self-confidence in our ability. And that's an important aspect. So that's why also we need to start every meditation with loving-kindness meditation, because loving-kindness meditation is a support system for self-confidence, because then we know we can react. That seems a bit strange because an insight is usually connected to an aha experience and very rarely to something that one would make fun of. It's an aha experience where the things we know anyway are seen in a different light. It's nothing uh, earth-shattering. It's nothing that... uh, is totally new and has never been known before. It's the way things are. 
but seen in a different light. So, possibly, more loving-kindness meditation. One can use any time at all during the day for that, without um, the guided meditation. In calm meditation, when we still our thoughts and find relief from constant mental chatter and cease reacting, is the pleasant sensation, joy and peace we feel just relief or are we accessing something more like an inner natural purity? Well, that depends entirely where we're at. In the first meditative absorption, we're certainly accessing something far more than just relief. If we are concerned with uh, watching the breath and just have a few moments of peace and quiet, then that's what we get. We get a moment of peace and quiet. depends entirely what we're doing. When we send love to others in metta meditation, does it truly reach and affect them? Or are we simply developing our own capacity to love? Well, mainly we're developing our own capacity to love, of course. And uh, that should reach and affect anyone that we come in contact with once we have actually developed it. But as we also um, reach out to other people, and in the beginning it probably will only be felt by those who are physically near, uh, it will also affect them. But then, if our love and compassion becomes stronger and stronger, there's no reason why we can't reach also people much further away. It uh, can be compared to a radio. If the radio isn't turned on, we can't receive anything. If the radio is turned on to the wrong station and we want to hear music, we can't get it because we're on the wrong station. But... If the radio is turned on and it's set on the right station, there's no reason why it can't receive the music that it's, we were looking for. So if the other people are tuned in, no reason why they can't receive it. But it depends how strong our transmitter is. And some transmitters don't reach very far. And some reach a long way. Some people have satellites on their roof. <laughs> D. H. Lawrence wrote a poem entitled Build Your Ship of Death. He describes the importance of preparing oneself for death. Would you please explain some of the factors necessary for preparation for our death? Yes, I will, but not tonight. It, depend, it belongs to the five delivery collections, and I will certainly talk about it. I have a physical condition which cannot be cured medically and to which I often react with fear and anxiety. Part of my practice is to try to deal with these negative reactions by substituting a feeling of acceptance and of wishing my body well. Of course, I don't always succeed. But that's a good thing to do, to a um, uh, feeling of acceptance and wishing the body well. But as these negative reactions can be quite obsessive, another way I use is simply to drop the thought by saying to myself, no, I'm not going to think about this now. 
This feels quite a healthy way of dealing with it, stopping the obsessive thought in its tracks. But is there a danger of avoidance and suppression in doing it this way? Yes, there is that danger in this way. The first one sounded much better, um, substituting a feeling of acceptance and wishing the body well. But the other thing which I would also um, suggest in this particular case would be to look at the impermanence of any body and not to identify with the body. When one is actually asked, are you the body? Nobody will say yes. Nobody believes it and yet we act as if we do. We're not the body. Everybody knows that. If we were, I wouldn't be very satisfactory, would it? If, when the Buddha saw, in, when he was, um, not the Buddha yet, but Prince Siddhartha Gautama, saw a sick person, an old person, and a corpse. These are called the messengers that sent him on his way to find the remedy for the dukkha that people experience. Bodies are notoriously affected, even though the London Times seems to be against it, um, by disease. They are. And it is much easier to bear the disease by realizing that one doesn't have a monopoly on it. That's just the way it is. And there's far more to a human being than just this body. And as we contemplate our own diseases, our own death, our own decay, and become more and more, not only accepting of them, but recognizing what it means to have a body such as this, then any disease is actually just a proof of that, that it isn't just me, it's just a body, that's all. And when we become more accepting, we can also be far more at ease. Now obviously, very much physical pain has a threshold, there's a limit because that is just the way a human being is made. But this apparently does not have pain with it. It's just the fact that it's uh, debilitating. And uh, as it is debilitating, we can also realize the fact that as a body grows older, it will be debilitated. And if we don't want to grow old, we've got to die young. There's just no other way about it. And if we haven't managed that, we're going to grow old. And there is something wrong, no doubt. So actually what I'm suggesting is to look at the, uh, uh, at the disease which is there with um, um, more often insight um, and um, more often investigating way also and looking at it and seeing it for what it is. As I said before, hospitals are the biggest buildings anywhere. 
You can check it out when you leave here and see in the towns. Munich's got a beauty. So uh, hospitals are huge and so many people work there and so many people also are being cared for there and not all of them successfully. That's the way it is with bodies. So I would suggest that the feeling of acceptance and wishing the body well is a better way than just saying, no, no, let it go. Um, this is a positive way. The, uh, if it doesn't work, certainly let it, letting go of it is also uh, helpful. Um, it was said that, uh, no, I don't, I don't want to think about this now. Um, it's only insight which changes the whole thing. When I say to myself, I don't want to think about it now, there is no um, reason why the thought shouldn't come up again. And I've got to do it over and over again. So it's the insight which will actually change it with the way I have uh, suggested or any other way which the mind can conjure up to see that's it, bodies get sick. There's no two ways about it. We... Um, They've got lots of readers' letters in the London Times. Could write to them about it and ask them how they're going to change that. Ah, here's one more. Today there is quite an emphasis on going through grieving for a whole range of situations, from the death of a loved one, a separation in a relationship, to general disappointments. This process is seen as healing. Could you please comment on this? Also, how does this relate to going through, sorry, can't see that word, or expressing other emotions? I think that's what it says. Also, how does this relate to going through or expressing other emotions? Going through. Mm. Um, it's certainly um, um, very useful and to have that uh, uh, quite clear what one is grieving about and what uh, what are the uh, the range of situations that were disappointing but um, the thing to do is of course not to keep them but to recognize the fact that they're in the past and that the past is irrevocably gone and will never come back no matter how much we try to arouse it in our memory. And also to recognize the fact that the person who experienced any of these situations in the past is not the person, the same one, that is remembering them. The totally different one. Thinking differently, experiencing differently, and having a different situation. So that there's only the connection of the karmic resultant. That's all there is. We're changing every moment. So once having gone through the grief and recognizing it for what it is, it's in the past, it's about things which didn't work out the way I wanted them to, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't be grieving. If they had worked out properly, I would be not uh, disappointed. And then, to let the whole thing go. And let it be. Every single moment is our life. The past is 
not our life. That was a life experience. It's a very unfortunate that people usually hang on to the past very strongly because we identify with that. There's no identification. The person is no longer there. That person that experienced the past. In that respect, I always recommend, and I will do that now because it seems to fit in here, that when you get home again, get out your old photo albums, particularly those that your mother might have kept from the time you were born, and then stand in front of the mirror with the photo album, and then look at that little naked person on a bearskin rug that's supposed to be you, and then look in the mirror. There's no connection. You can't even, you can't see it. You can't feel it. You've got the photo, a piece of paper. That's all that you have. And if you haven't got one on the bearskin rug, you might have one where you're toddling about in the sandbox or whatever. And then you might have one where you went to school the first day. Just keep looking. What's the connection? A piece of paper. That's all there is. It's very helpful to let the past be what it is, the past, gone and no longer relevant in one's thought processes, totally opposed to Western modern therapy. <laughs> we can stand up and stretch our legs. <laughs> Is it really so that we should let go of our discursive thinking in everyday life the whole time and should practice substitution all the time? That means should we try to educate our mind without any pauses? I think I need to hear it again. <laughs> Is it an aim? never to think discursively? How can you write your shopping list for next week? Well, the last thing first, if we think discursively, I don't think we're going to write a very useful shopping list. A shopping list is going to look pretty funny. So um, that's an, a must, huh? Uh, yes, the discursive thinking is usually not very profitable. It's an entertainment for the guys. For the, sorry, this is in German. For the mind. <laughs> and uh, entertainment is, uh, well, it's better than negativity, but it certainly doesn't bring any um, one-pointedness to the mind. So what the uh, substitution is all about in everyday life is to substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome. To have anything that is negative uh, to recognize that and to be able to substitute that. And I said there's an intermediate step that if we can't immediately substitute with the opposite, which are the Buddha's instructions, substitution with the opposite. 
then if we can't do that and it's often quite difficult to do then to have the intermediate step of thinking of something entirely different discursive thinking is um, mostly fantasizing and uh, has to do with future and past and it doesn't bring any clarity so if we can let go of it even to a certain extent we will find that first of all the mind is far more at ease and secondly we don't have so much constant activity in our mind which is very tiring people are very very tired in the evening having done practically nothing all day why? because the mind's been so active it's been working all day long and their body might have sat still so the uh, the discursive thinking is very tiring and so if we can manage eventually through our um, meditative practice to come to a point where we think when we want to think and when we think what we want to think and when we want to think it we will find that this is extremely relaxing, peaceful and lacking in stress but it's a practice path which doesn't happen immediately what can one do if one does not feel anything while loving kindness meditation uh, or during my loving kindness meditation I dare say or in the beginning of normal meditation to get a good start I've thought of a lot of things I like but a real warm feeling doesn't come up if we do the loving kindness meditation and there's no feeling it's still useful to keep on thinking it where the thoughts go we will eventually have a feeling because thinking is also a sense contact and all sense contacts are followed by feeling whether we know it or not so when we think it it's at least in the right direction and if we keep on doing it and persevere there's no reason why the feeling shouldn't arise it can very well be and it usually is that the feeling is there but that the mindfulness isn't strong enough to become aware of it the feeling is also not very strong so there is that difficulty but just think it over and over again um, a warm feeling at the beginning of meditation well um, a warm feeling would be nice but it can be just a feeling of acceptance a feeling of being in the right place at the right time a feeling of um, flowing with the moment it doesn't have to be a warm feeling if we can think of something nice about the practice we're doing it's much more helpful than just sitting down the, um, if the loving kindness to oneself doesn't produce any kind of feeling then maybe gratitude or the other things I've just mentioned 
may be helpful at the beginning of meditation. There's one other thing I like to say about that, about the frustration which arises when the expected results of meditation don't materialize. First of all, expectations have, all expectations have one thing in common, and that's it, disappointments. They belong together, just like they, uh, there is always sun and shade. So we, they always belong together. So expectations are the first thing to let go. They, they don't have any place in meditation. And the other thing is that even the most unconcentrated meditation brings results immediate and all of the results are profitable each one the first one is that we're making good karma making good karma because there's a good intention the more good karma we make the easier life becomes so that's a guaranteed result whatever the intention behind it it has to be one which is on the level of goodness. The second profitable result that we have is that our repeated attention to the meditation subject counteracts our third hindrance, namely lassitude and laziness of the mind. Sloth and torpor, it's usually called, but these are words we don't use so much. And that sloth and torpor is an, a common, a very human weakness. It's an overall topic again for one of our hindrances. And every time we attend to the meditation subject, we automatically counteract that. So if we have to start all over again during one session a hundred times, we have a hundred times a remedy for sloth and torpor in the mind. Sloth and torpor was called by the Buddha to be in prison, for which we have our own key, which we can unlock. And this is one way of unlocking that prison. The other thing is that if we label the distracting thoughts and if the meditation is very unconcentrated we should have plenty of opportunity to label even if we only do every third, fourth or fifth thought or six during 45 minutes one can have at least 25 labels so having done that we have learned first of all labeling and substituting because even if we substitute f uh, f only for a moment to the breath again it's a substitution so we're learning the labeling and the substitution if we've never done it before we won't do it during a daily life why should we remember in daily living what we can't remember in meditation it's much easier to remember during meditation because there isn't anything else happening but in daily life, a lot of things are happening. So it's much easier to forget them. 
We've got to learn that. If we don't learn to label our own thought processes, we can never enter on a spiritual path. Because a spiritual path doesn't come from outside, it comes from in here. And our thought processes are the ones that make it work. So that's another thing that we have immediate profit. The labeling and the substitution. If we do the labeling, we immediately learn our thought patterns. Everybody has certain patterns. Planning, or remembering, or disliking, or whatever it may be. And getting to know our thought patterns means that we have a new insight into ourselves. Maybe we have a thought pattern of blaming. If we do, it's worthwhile knowing about it. And if we do know about it, maybe we can do something about it. Whether we blame ourselves or others makes no difference. Blaming is blaming. It's just as unfortunate to blame oneself as it is unfortunate to blame others. So that's another profitable result. Another profitable result which should come immediately is that we realize that we don't have to believe every thought we have. They're just thoughts. And some of them are so out of the way from what's going on. They have absolutely no connection. They're arising out of nowhere and they're disappearing into nowhere. And in daily life we have the tendency to believe every thought and to run after it. To try and do something about it. Or become depressed by it. Or start blaming. They're just thoughts. They have actually no reality. So we can see that when we label properly. Labeling means getting to know oneself. So there's another immediate profit. We learn we have make good karma. We work against our sloth and torpor in the mind. We have the uh, learning situation of labeling and substitution. We learn to see that there's no reason to believe all these thoughts and we can also realize that as they come, they go. We see their impermanence. And we no longer have to own each one of them. If they're that impermanent, why do I have to have such a strong grip on them that they're mine? As long as I have a really strong grip on them that they're mine, I would find it very difficult to be told that they're wrong. Very difficult. Because it's me. So how can me be wrong? Only when we know that a thought is a thought and nothing else can we accept the fact that it could possibly be totally wrong. That it is on a, on a level where it isn't profitable when we can accept that, that our thinking may be wrong, we have a chance to change it. When we can't accept that, we can't change it. So all of these things happen in a totally unconcentrated meditation. And one of the very important things which happen is purification. One second of concentration is one second of purification. 
in that one second we can't either have hate nor greed we have concentration so that one second of concentration is one second more of purification as we would have otherwise so there's absolutely no reason to be frustrated if bliss doesn't come down from wherever it's supposed to live and enclose us with a mantle of golden images or whatever we have immediate resultants which are far, far more profitable than a golden mantle of bliss which we have maybe imagined there's nothing wrong with bliss but uh, it's quite okay but if it isn't there there's nothing wrong with that either it just is and we need to be totally aware of the fact that there is purification in every moment that we put our mind on the meditation subject and that purification then of course mounts from one second to two seconds and so on until there's more and more naturally our purification processes have to continue in daily life there's no question about it but without the support system of meditation it's almost impossible in fact i might say it's impossible but that might be a too vast a statement but it's certainly almost impossible the support system of meditation and contemplation need to be there so that our work is minimized it's much less in daily life than it would otherwise be there's still enough of it it still will keep us busy enough how helpful does one have to be i am in the situation that people very often come to the uh, to me are wanting help or advice or just my presence i love them and i like helping but sometimes it's too much is it okay to say stop while practicing loving kindness in everyday life it doesn't work from the first day on how should one act well there's an art in saying no and one has to learn that too certainly one has to protect one's own happiness neither to the extent of not being helpful nor to the extent where one gets burned out the more loving kindness one has for oneself the less one gets burned out burnout is always connected with result thinking and result thinking is so widespread that practically everybody has it i'm doing good so there got to be a tangible result i'm doing good and that is already a tangible result that doesn't have to be anything else most people don't have that the kind of um relationship to their <coughs> acts and to their helpful uh, works it's a very important one it sounds very simple doesn't it the good deed is already the result there has to be no other 
if we should be looking for gratitude, we might as well forget that. Because that's already a return of something for what we have done. The Buddha said there are three rarities. One is that a Buddha arises, one that a person does a kindness, and one that another person is grateful for it. So we might as well forget about that, about gratitude. We don't need to look for it. If the other person that we are helping is grateful, that's their good karma. And we should be joyful for them that they are making good karma, that's all, because they're grateful. It has nothing to do with us. But most people do look for that kind of response because it's akin to praise. And people have great difficulties with not looking for praise. So burnout is, of course, an unkindness to oneself. Happens always connected to result thinking. Has, of course, other causes too. Physical disabilities. One needs to love oneself enough to know when one has to stop. And if one says no to someone, it has to be done in the way that the other person doesn't feel hurt. If one has tried that and the other person does feel hurt, then one has at least a good conscience that one has done everything one can. You extend loving kindness to one who has hurt you and will hurt you again, perhaps even kill you. How can we extend loving kindness and still protect our happiness? I think the other one is another question. Um, we have to find out what our happiness is. If our happiness is totally and utterly bound up with not dying, we're never going to be happy. It's a foregone conclusion. We're all going to die. So if that is the only way we can be happy, that we have to be assured that we're not going to die, nobody's going to disturb us in this living process, there's no way we can be happy. What is our real happiness? Where does our real happiness come from? The real happiness has nothing to do with outer conditions. The real happiness is in this second, and the real happiness is within us. And we can find it, we've all got it. But we've got to get in there. And that's what we're trying to do in this course. Get in there far enough to find it. As long as we think that outward conditions have anything to do with our happiness, we'll never be happy. The outer conditions will not comply with our requests. Sometimes they happen to be just the way we want them. Most of the time they don't. And they start with the little things and go to the big things. Loving kindness in one's heart is one way to have happiness. It's a second stage of happiness, if you remember. The very first one were the sense contacts, the pleasant ones. Second stage was the purification of one's heart so that there is loving kindness and compassion in the heart. I haven't talked about the third and fourth stage yet in that context, but I will. And then it says, do we kill the mosquito or do we let it feed on us if there's no other choice? 
Each person makes a choice whether we'd like to be a meal for a mosquito or not. It's our own choice. Whatever we feel. People make constant choices. Constant karma. Karma making is choice making. So we constantly make choices. It's entirely up to each person. And whatever it is, that's the karma we make. Can you say something about the importance of a spiritual teacher in the meditative process um, which demand a trust and devotion? Um, certainly important to have a teacher. In fact, in the beginning it's essential. There are very few people who are such spiritual geniuses that they can find the way themselves. There are some, but they're very rare. Ramana Maharshi was one. I've mentioned them twice before. He didn't have a teacher, and he became enlightened spontaneously at the age of 16. I think we've all passed that one. <laughs> Missed that opportunity. So uh, we'll have to try another time. A little older. But that's very rare. Very, very rare. Most people need instructions and guidance. And um, another thing which is also important about a teacher in, uh, in, in any uh, uh, spiritual uh, discipline is the fact that there is someone that one needs to listen to. And most people have great difficulty with that especially in the West. Authority is not a pleasant word, but it belongs to the pathway. That there is um, not abuse of authority, which is, of course, something entirely different, but that there is enough humility in the heart to be able to go along with instructions and guidance and also the uh, uh, requests that one may or may not get from a teacher. It's a very important aspect of softening the heart and opening it up because the hardness of the heart is due totally to the hardness of the ego illusion, the egocentricity. The harder that's embedded, the harder the heart is. So this is a very great help in that respect. And uh, yes, the meditative process does need the devotion and trust, and if one can extend that to a teacher, one has already an advantage. This is a fairly long one, but I think it's quite important. And uh, so I'll read it out. Huh? Would you please discuss how a yogi employs the various meditation techniques as you teach them? It seems to me that a good deal of this work is about having a relationship with yourself. Yes, you can see that. In knowing or being aware of the symptoms of one's dis-ease 
then an appropriate method can be practiced to restore, restore or enhance well-being. Although I have a cursory understanding of the relationship between concentration and insight methods, I still find myself confused as to how one navigates through this interior space. For example, I have heard that with time permitting, some yogis will practice concentration, at concentration technique at the beginning of their sitting and access one or more of the rupa jhanas to collect or recreate themselves. Then, sometime during their absorption, they will fully disrupt this calm and watching the jhanic factors fade, they begin satipatthana vipassana practice. Noticing what arises in mind and body with great clarity and precision. Many Western teachers of Buddhist meditation will avoid even discussing this in interviews. The advice I get most of the time is when feelings of rapture and seclusion of mind ensue is just keep noting. Don't mess with that stuff. Apparently, there's a prevailing view that the average Joe or Josephine uh, leads too frantic a lifestyle to enter absorption. I've read the discussions in the Visuddhi Magga and a number of suttas in the uh, Majumanikaya dealing with this subject, but regrettably, without a teacher close at hand, it's difficult to fathom how to employ these practices. Well, what unfortunately has happened, we have come to an age of technology and not spirituality. And that age of technology is all-pervading. It's everywhere. Even we have two computers at Buddha House and a fax machine. But obviously, we find other things more important. But in this age of technology, where spirituality has, has become or had become a side issue, there is a lack of the exact guidance and the understanding of the guidelines that were given by the founders of these spiritual disciplines, which applies not only to Buddhism, but applies to Buddhism too. Reading the Visuddhimagga, as mentioned here, which is in is, uh, the translation of that is a path of purification. It's a commentary on the Buddhist teaching from the 5th century by a monk called Buddha Gosa, who lived in Sri Lanka. And it's a, a, a volume about this thick. And uh, it contains everything one needs to know in rather dry language. Or, having read the Majjhima Nikaya, which are the middle-length discourses of the Buddha, Nikaya means collection, and Majjhima means middle-length, which are not as dry and not as thick, 152 discourses, of which most of them deal with meditation, and out of those, all of them deal with the meditative absorptions, which are the jhanas. The Buddha's instructions are, that's the pathway. It's not the end, it's a pathway. What has happened, in the words of my own teacher, 
Venobanyana Rama of Mitrigala in Sri Lanka, who died two years ago. It's a lost art. To meditate properly is a lost art. Go and revive it. Well, I'm doing my level best, but it's a puny exercise compared to the enormous number of people who exist in the world, and also it's um, um, sometimes not very profitable because...